This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Julia Joubert. A sudden onset or revelation of an illness or disorder can in many ways unsettle a relationship. For some, this discovery involves adapting and growing as the relationship changes. For others, it might mean the end of the relationship. On today's Peace Talks Radio episode, correspondent Julia Joubert explores the complexities of navigating these changing relationships. Through first-hand experience, as well as a check-in with a therapist, we explore the emotions that arise, how we can process them constructively, and how we can effectively communicate feelings and boundaries through what is ultimately an incredibly sensitive time. We will hear from Imani Carter-Hale, a systemic and family psychotherapist specializing in trauma, boundaries, family conflict, and coping skills, among others. Later, we'll meet Danny Fonsale, a young South African living with chronic pain who reflects on how difficult it is to maintain relationships and what it feels like when people choose to walk away from them. But first, we'll hear from Adrian and Claudine de Villiers, a couple out of Cape Town, South Africa. In 2021, they were both hospitalized and on ventilation as a result of COVID, narrowly escaping death. But COVID was not the only stressor to enter their relationship. In August of the same year, 17 years into their marriage, Adrian was diagnosed with addiction and bipolar disorder. In July, August of 2021, I was diagnosed with bipolar. But uh, as a dual diagnosis, um, I had uh, suffered addiction and I was addicted to certain substances, which was alcohol and marijuana. And had you been dealing with addiction prior to your bipolar or? Yeah, no, I was, I, was, I was trying to deal with my addiction, but I relapsed Yeah, just before I was diagnosed with bipolar. At what point in your relationship with Claudine did this diagnosis, this dual diagnosis manifest itself? I think from my side I was in the relationship with Claudine but having these demons of drugs piggybacking on me for this long time. I tried to get clean a few months, maybe even a year, but not working a program, not having a sponsor, not having any of those type of uh, support systems only led me to be short-lived sobriety. And you speak about your addiction kind of, you use the words, kind of piggybacking on you into the relationship and through it for what was ultimately 15 years before then the bipolar diagnosis came as well. Was this abuse of marijuana and alcohol something that you had concealed from Claudine at all? No, um, it wasn't taboo. It was accepted because you were in the in the group of friends. Um, everybody's basically doing it. To be honest with you, I never thought anything wrong about it. I just thought it was a normal day for me until it started affecting my relationship, affecting my work life, affecting my thinking. Hmm. Claudine, I'd like to move this over to you for a second. At what point did you confront this challenge in your relationship? For me, it's been a long time coming, but it really hit home when we went into hard lockdown. That was kind of a turning point for me. And I got a call. Oh, you don't mind me sharing this? You can share anything. And um, so he was at work and then he called me to say he has to work late. 
so I thought, okay, cool, that's fine, I'll just, because I'm home, it's fine. Um, and I got a call from one of his colleagues to say that he's passed out on the floor because he was drinking so much. So the fact that he could call me and just lie to me that easily, it got to me. And it kind of escalated from there. The breaking point for me was in 2021. We stopped taking his meds and he started smoking like all the time. And I had to actually book him into a, a clinic because mm. I didn't know what to do with him. So at that point, he wasn't diagnosed with bipolar. He had depression. She booked me the Sunday in. I was convinced the nurses were <laughs> out to get me. I was then taken to a government institution, hospital for observation for three days. Claudine and her sister came to fetch me without clothes, basically, <laughs> from the state or hospital, government hospital. I then went for 21 days into treatment. And I didn't see Claudine for that, that all of the 21 days. I tried to contact her, but she wasn't quite interested at that stage. And that's when Dr. Fees diagnosed me with bipolar disorder as well. What was the first conversation like when you did reconnect? So Dorothy called me and said, can we have a session with you both because he is going to be discharged tomorrow? Would I be willing to come? And then I went and we sat across from each other and he just assumed he's coming home. And she asked me, are you ready for him to come home? And I said, no, I don't know. And I could see in that moment his face fell because we reached a different part in our relationship. I've never said that, ever. Um, I can't tell you exactly when the moment was um, that I felt we're doing this because I lost a lot of trust in um, the fact that it was just so easy for him to lie to me. And I couldn't get past that. It took me a long time to get past that. It was more of a navigation between the two of us and kind of trying to build back that trust for me. Adrian, for you, was there anything that came from your side in terms of, forgive me, I don't know the process of rehabilitation, so I'm not exactly sure of the steps that you took, but from what I'm understanding, you of course wanted to come back home, come back to your family. What were you saying from your side when I'm sure you can understand the, the broken trust, you can understand the hurt? I couldn't make any more promises because I broke promises, I lied to her, I was doing things behind her back. I think the honesty, but more than honesty, it was a sense of you have to choose. Choose your drugs or choose the relationship. I think my, I did also not have a light bulb moment. It was understanding that it is a disease and treating it as a disease. And once I started recognizing that, that I've got this problem, the only way to deal with this is being totally honest about what, what I need. And what I needed was help from Claudine because I don't think she accepted me. I would, that would be my real rock bottom if she had to say enough is enough. So that boundary she put in place by saying, okay, you can come back, but on condition, no, no loving, no touching, no everything. You must do your things on your own. That was the tough love that I needed. 
How do you lean on Claudine and how do you feel about having to lean on her? For the diagnosis, I feel that I, I go from one extreme where I'm totally invincible and confident to where I am in my shell and I don't get out of bed. Claudine is my safety net, I think, and I, I, I use that all the time. It makes me feel very, it makes me feel sad because I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know what I'm doing to her is kind of cowardly. Yes, cowardly. Um, letting her take up all the responsibility for what I'm going through. She's my therapist, my caregiver. She's all of those things wrapped into one. Claudine, I just wanted to come to you there. I know it's technically, in the grand scheme of things, maybe early days, but you did stay and you have played this role. Can you walk me through that? What I can tell you is that something is different this time around. Like he's really trying, I think. Mm-hmm. Where before, I felt like I was just nagging and I felt like he was kind of doing it for me. But I don't feel like that. I actually feel like he's doing it for himself. Like I must say that I do get very angry because he does put a lot on me and he expects a lot from me. Mm. So you say um, it's not a even playing field. It's not. Because I do feel like I give a lot of myself more than mm. he gives. But the thing is, maybe that's all he has to give for now. And I kind of have to accept that. What is your communication looking like between the two of you right now? Maybe, Adrian, you can start. Claudine has a good way of getting things out of me now. And I've also learned how to tell her exactly what's going on in my head and uh, how I feel. And I think that's been good, but it also drains her. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, but it's definitely she is more gentle with me. And I think the lines of communication is that I don't have to be afraid to tell anything. But the the best line of communication is the, is the love we have with each other, I'd say. So what we, we always do is... Um, oh, yeah. We, we would lay in bed at night and um, just talk about your day and laugh and that before you sleep. And that does help. Eh? We do it a lot. Oh, we do it so much. So kind of getting back into the little things, because that's a big thing for me. So that was a thing that we used to do a lot of. And we kind of started getting back into good patterns, I would say. For other people going through a similar experience, how important is it to have your individual communities to support each other? We are very private people in that if there's... I'm very close to my parents and I have one sister. And we share everything. So if I, t- I tried to hide everything from everybody, but I, j- I couldn't. At this point, I just realized, why am I doing this alone? And I, I called his family and my family and I told them what's, what's happening because I thought I'm not going to hide this and then I have mm. to carry this alone. Uh, I, I must say that a therapist for the trauma and it actually is good to check in every month. Yeah, I can say from myself, I'm fortunate, besides the professional help, obviously Narcotic Anonymous and the fellowship within it, some open groups as well. I'm also fortunate to have a colleague at work and we, I'm quite open with him chatting at work, so I've got a little community at work as well. So I'm fortunate to have 
when I leave to go to work, I can have people I can lean on. When I come back home, I can lean on Claudine. When I go to an NA, when I, I'm actually quite fortunate. And it's imperative that as an addict, you have these communities and connections. Because if you don't have these connections, I can tell you, you're going to start falling apart and then you're going to back to that, that rabbit hole of drug abuse. But mm-hmm. I, I'd say for any, if it wasn't for these communities that I'm in, I would have faulted. That was Adrian and Claudine, and you can hear Julia Joubert's full interview with the two of them at our Peace Talks website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Coming up, we'll hear from a therapist about navigating new roles in a challenged relationship, processing anger and guilt, and how clear communication with the other and the self is at the core of any changing relationship. Emily Carter-Hale is next, right after this short break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm serious producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Julia Joubert. Adapting to the sudden changes that illness brings to a relationship can be very difficult. There are newfound roles, conflicting emotions, and the expectation to give as much as possible. But where does one even begin? And is there a right and wrong way of doing it? Emily Carter-Hale is a U.S.-trained marriage and family therapist, now a systemic and family psychotherapist who's based in London. Here again, our correspondent, Julia Joubert. I realize, obviously, it's it's very nuanced. And in this episode itself, you know, we're speaking about physical ailments. We're also speaking about the disease of addiction. It's a very broad scope, and obviously each is different to each person. But disease of diagnosis has entered the relationship. Now what? Is there a first step to adapting? Is there a process that we should be following? So what I would say is there's no process. However, I would say one of the first steps is self-reflecting on the impact that it's having on yourself. And what I would say that may look like is, is thinking about how do I feel? And I think a big part of it is You can physically know you don't feel well, but are you checking in with your body? A big part of self-reflective experiences is thinking about how is this experience impacting how I feel? For example, a lot of people very easily turn to anger. And what I typically say is anger is actually a secondary emotion. When we think about an iceberg, anger is the tip of the iceberg, but underneath that, there are a 
astonishing amount of emotions that we are experiencing and feeling, but we typically lean into anger. If someone does something to you and you say, oh my God, I can't believe you did this to me. How could you make me feel this way? What I'm hearing is betrayal. I'm not hearing anger. What we need to do to be more self-reflective is really think about how do we feel about this experience? In what way is it impacting our body, our emotions, our mood? Are we noticing our sleep patterns are different, our eating patterns? Are we feeling more irritable? The only way that we're able to check in with ourselves is if we are able to have the capability to be self-reflective. In saying that, I recognize that not everybody has the skill set mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And how do people take on these new roles? When we spoke in the pre-interview, you mentioned the, the kind of distinction between somebody who's potentially a sufferer and somebody who is a caregiver. And all of a sudden, you've mentioned now the big stress. It is just the complete change in dynamic, change in role, change in relation to each other. How do people usually take on their new roles? And is there a right or a wrong way of doing it? So it's really interesting because a lot of people, I think, hate to hear the saying of it all goes back to childhood. And one thing you will frequently hear me say is a lot of it actually does simply because the way in which we form bonds early in our life with our caregivers and with others, that completely impacts the way we then relate within these interpersonal dynamics. So if someone leans into a caregiver role very naturally, what that tells me is, is maybe there's some type of anxious attachment within their dynamics that they've always experienced, but it's just that this particular ailment is exacerbating it. Uh, One thing that we commonly see is someone leaning into caring for others despite it being a detriment to self. And that's a really big one because you could almost say that, well, doesn't it just mean that someone cares about them? I wouldn't discount that they care about that person. What I would say is, is if they are finding themselves engaging in behavior simply out of the benefit of others, though it's detrimental to themselves, I would say that they're leaning into caregiving behavior. Mm -hmm. You're completely forgetting about your own needs. And then to look at it from the other angle... In your experience, what has that looked like in terms of being somebody who now is in the vulnerable position, is the sufferer, is in need of help and is finding themselves in a position where they have to actively ask for it or sometimes they can't even ask for it. They just kind of have to accept that it's coming their way. How do they navigate that? If someone has never experienced any forms of like disappointment or anything where they've needed to rely on others, naturally so it can be difficult to find comfort in relying on others. Very early on in our lives, we can experience attachment wounds with our caregivers. If our physical needs aren't being met, our emotional needs, our mental needs, our cognitive needs, if these needs are not being met early on in our attachment, what can happen is we can experience these attachment wounds, which can then make it difficult for us to attach to others. What I will say is these wounds are not lifelong. Now they can feel like they are, but what may happen is someone who has experienced significant attachment wounds may very well struggle to say, I need support or even find the words to admit to self because the first step is admitting to self that I need some support. I wanted to circle back to anger. Anger is something that has come up a lot in the conversations that I've had. It's something that, as you said, is kind of like the the tip of the iceberg and there's obviously so much below that. But anger is still real. And do you have any advice on where 
where to put that anger, where to direct that anger when you are feeling those emotions and how do you how do you hold it or or let it go? As you said, anger is real. Despite it being secondary, it's still a very real emotion that all humans experience. It's interesting because there are different ways to kind of effectively deal with your anger. But one way that is very common to many people is I would say if you're noticing that you feel angry with self or other as you're going through this change, one way is very simple, walking away. And I think that's interesting in itself because then we think about, well, what if walking away is triggering for the other person? Communicate while you're walking away. Let them know, you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this right now. I need to take time to think about what I'm feeling and then I'll talk to you when I'm ready. In some way, you want to be connected to the present. You want to be connected to the here and now because when we're angry, we are responding to a stressor. And we, we have this cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone. It's running through, it's coursing through us when we are experiencing some form of a threat. And so if you're responding to that cortisol and that stress hormone is going through your body and you're feeling yourself be angry, you are not actually focused on breathing. Mm -hmm. You're not actually focused on that in that moment. So that's why I say deep breathing can be really effective because it forces you to come back to the present and to the here and now. So deep breathing is another one. Move your body, move around, whether it means you are going for a walk. If you can't run, go for a walk. Journaling is like one of the most powerful things that you can do. You are allowing yourself to really write down or type out what it is that you're feeling and why it is that you're feeling that way. Mm -hmm. Another way is literally screaming. A lot of people don't know this, but screaming can be really effective as an emotional release, whether it's in a pillow, whether you're going on a hike and you <laughs> scream, scream it out. Who cares who's around? You need to allow yourself to get the oxygen flowing so that you can start to think about what it is that you're actually angry about. I wanted to come to as well an idea that a lot of people walk away not for a lack of care, but just a fear at being confronted with this really scary thing that is happening to somebody that they love. How would you advise them to navigate that, to come to terms with those feelings? Is fear something that I'm supposed to be overcoming or is that also something that I just accept as part of my process? One of the first things I would say is thinking about, when you think about relationships, do you typically find yourself walking away out of fear of the unknown? And if the question is yes, I would say thinking about why that is. What about not knowing what's going to happen next is scary for you? And again, I want to say that could be scary for anybody. Like if I don't know where this person is in my life. For example, I use an example of relationships. We like to have certainty in our relationships, whether they're intimate or not. If we don't know that there's some level of certainty, very naturally it can invoke feelings of nervousness and worry and concern. However, if you're finding that you need concrete certainty that someone will always be in your life in the same capacity that they were, then I would ask you to self-reflect on 
why that is. Because ultimately, that's not a them thing. That's a you thing. They're coping and they're trying to deal with or even trying to understand the changes that they're going through. And I think that is a big part of, again, doing the self-reflective work and asking yourself, what about this feels scary? Like, why am I so afraid that I am walking away before having to deal with any of the change? And I think that is significant in thinking about is coping with change is the bigger question. Have you always struggled to cope with change? In what way have you coped with change in the past? Have you typically avoided it? What does that avoidance look like? And these are really big questions that you start to ask yourself when you're faced with the possibility of changes happening within your relationships. So if I'm a listener and I'm listening to this and I'm being like, okay, I I resonate, I understand what I need to do, but I have no idea where to start. Do you have any advice on that? What I will say is obviously being a therapist, I love therapy. I think therapy is amazing. However, Mm -hmm. again, therapy is not accessible to everybody. So I think if it's accessible, that's wonderful. Seek out the support. One thing that I've realized is that the internet can be an amazing tool. It can also be a difficult tool and a harmful tool, but it can also be amazing because it's really, really easy, I would say, to find information on positive psychology, on mindfulness. So I would say look Mm -hmm. into different mindfulness apps. And if you can seek additional support, do so. And would you say this applies to both parties, the caregiver and the afflicted person? Yes, because I think that it's fair to say, and many people have different views about this, but it's fair to say that both parties are going to experience a range of emotions and all those emotions are valid. And I do say that because the way we emotionally feel is always valid. The way we behaviorally respond can either serve us or not serve us. And that's why those two things are very different. You know, how important is it for people to be relying on friends and family in these situations? Oh, it's so important. It is actually really important that we have other support networks outside of our partner. It may feel comfortable for you because it's what you're used to. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's serving you in your growth as an individual. What I will say is it's no one's responsibility how codependent someone else is with them. Again, we can't control someone else's behavior. What we can do is we can acknowledge how our behavior is exacerbating a situation. And if we feel that it's not serving us, we can make that change for self. Because you'll never have control over the things that are happening to us if we're never allowing ourselves to be in the driving seat. And essentially, that's mm-hmm. what it is. We're, what we're doing is by never putting ourselves in the driver's seat, it allows us to say, these things are happening to us. But in reality, there are some things that we can get ahead of or that we can mitigate the effects if we remove ourselves from the passenger seat and put ourselves in the driving seat by deciding, I no longer want this to impact me the way it is. Yeah, it sounds like we're, we're getting into boundaries and I'm assuming boundaries are crucial in navigating this stressor or this conflict that has come into the relationship. What do these boundaries actually look like? How do you find boundaries? How do you recognize what your boundary is? And how should people communicate these boundaries? 
So boundaries are very interesting because I think prior to starting my journey to working in the field of mental health, I didn't actually really think about boundaries. Like most people, we go through our day to day and you're not thinking about what boundaries you need to apply in what capacity they may present themselves, who, you know, who would be including those boundaries. But one thing I always say is all, and I think this is what's most shocking for people to hear is that personal boundaries are literally just limits. They're limits that we set for ourselves within relationships. A lot of the times we talk about boundaries as if they're for other people, but in reality, boundaries are for us. And I Mm -hmm. think the important thing is remembering is that when you are thinking about what it is that you're going to allow in your life, you're not thinking about the other person. You're thinking about what is it that you will allow yourself to sustain, to experience. And I think the first step in thinking about boundaries is remembering that it is okay to say no and that you're saying no for self, not for others. They allow us to decide how comfortable we are opening up to someone, the level of intimacy that we want in relationships. And one thing that I really like to do with people when we're thinking about boundaries is I'm not sure if you've ever heard of boundary circles. A really great tool, actually, that has been created and used by many therapists and many social workers because it's a tool, again, that's helping you to self-reflect. But essentially, boundary circles are allowing you to think about yourself and then also think about yourself as you relate to others. Who gets to be in your inner circle? What does that even mean? What does that look like? What is your inner circle? Who gets to be in those spaces? In what capacity are they allowed to move from inner circle to middle circle to outer circle? And I think it's really important when we're thinking about boundaries is thinking about, again, what are the rules within your inner circle, your middle circle, and your outer circle? What does that look like? What are these limits within these spaces? Because essentially our boundaries are based on our values. What are important to us? So if something is important to you, if the way someone communicates to you, communicates with you is important, what does that mean? For example, does it mean that you won't allow people to yell at you? Okay, that's a fair boundary. If you say the way that I like people to communicate with me is in a kind of, I guess I'd say, a middle tone, let's say that. And let's look, and I'd say, okay, so what is a middle tone? And they say, I just don't like when people yell at me. It's triggering when people raise their voices. So on one end, you have someone saying, I don't like to be yelled at. I don't like screaming. It's triggering for me. On the other end, I would say, I'd first, we'd explore that. But when we look at boundaries, I'd say, what is it exactly that you want from the person then? Because if you don't know what it is that you want, they can't know what it is, what you want, what it is that you want. And what I'd say is, okay, so then communicate that. You'd say, please don't yell at me. Moving forward, I'd like us to communicate in a steady tone. Yelling is very triggering for me. It brings up really harmful memories. I prefer that you did not speak to me that way. Now, let's say you communicate that boundary. You say, please don't do this, or I'm not comfortable with the way you're speaking to me. That's okay for you to say that. And I think that's the important thing is people, many times people are saying, is it okay for me to have boundaries? And I say, absolutely. If you don't have limits and rules within your relationships, you can't possibly know what it is that you want people and the way in which you want people to speak to you 
or I take it a step further or in the, or I'd say the way in which you are allowing others to have access to you. So if you don't want people to yell at you, if not communicating that boundary, they won't know that it's not appropriate. It's up mm-hmm. to you to communicate that boundary with others. But if you don't know that you're not okay with it, they won't know that you're not okay with it. No one is a mm-hmm. mind reader. And I think I'll, I'll really, I'll hear a lot of people say things like they should know they made me feel this way. And I say, why? Why should they know they've made you feel a certain way? Why should they know that their behavior is impacting you if you aren't communicating the impact that it's having? Continuing with boundaries and the communication of boundaries, how do we navigate this kind of feeling of guilt for putting our needs forward when somebody else's needs are seemingly more dire than yours? I think that's an interesting question because it's almost a question of rather than is it okay for me to feel guilt? Because it's okay to feel anything. If you're finding yourself kind of self-reflecting and you're saying, I feel guilty, again, I'll go back to saying it's okay to feel guilt. However, if that guilt is impacting the way in which you communicate your needs, this is, I think, the difficult part for people to hear is that it's then on you to decide what does it mean for me moving forward? Yeah. In a lot of my of my research in kind of trying to understand these dynamics, a lot of what comes up is I don't want to be the caregiver. I just I want to be a friend and a friend in my whatever that means and in my capacity. But often that's not received very well. Friendships are interesting. I any relationship is interesting, but friends friendships are particularly interesting. Simply because, and I think this is a really big part of the practice I do, is accountability. Well, what does accountability mean? Does accountability mean that I'm saying I want these things to change and I'm doing nothing to change them? No. That's the thing with accountability. Accountability is recognizing what do I have the capacity for? So doing that self-reflective work. What do I have the capacity for? In what way am I going to communicate that capacity? And if I notice no change in that relationship, what does that mean for me moving forward? And I think that's the big part of accountability is, again, people will choose to behave accordingly. Yeah. To throw a curveball here, though, you know, we've spoken about accountability. Do we then just, do we stand accountable to our choice and come to peace with the fact that my needs as the friend who wants to, you know, I don't know, go to a concert are not being met and the other person's needs for a caregiver are not being met? And maybe at this point we part ways? Or is there a different way of navigating that? I think it's difficult to accept that that person may not have the capacity at that moment to show up for you in the way that you'd show up for them. And it's okay to say, I've decided not to continue this relationship because I feel hurt and explain what that hurt is. And it's okay to feel that hurt and to decide to remove someone from your inner circle. But I think it's important to acknowledge that Just because someone is in pain or they're suffering, it doesn't make behavior okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really difficult thing to sit with Mm. because it's nothing that you can do, obviously. You can't change their situation suddenly just as they can't change how their behavior is impacting you. But what you can do is decide what it is that you're willing to deal with in the moment. It's okay. It doesn't mean that they will always be in this spot. However, it's not your job to have endless capacity for others. We as Mm -hmm. humans can't do that. 
We just can't do it. If I were to take it a step further, it's this idea that we have to always have people in our lives, that there's this conceptualization around forever relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Relationships are seasons. And I think that can be really difficult for people to understand is that some seasons are longer than others and it's okay. And I think that's something important. So for the person who has been diagnosed, as you said, you know, the the clear sufferer in this case, how would you walk them through coming to peace with the idea that someone had said, our season is over, I, I can't do this? The biggest part of coming to peace with those changes is communicating. Communicating to others that I won't have the capacity to show up for you in the way that I may have shown up or the way that I'd like to show up for you. I'm giving you this information and it's going to allow you to decide what you're going to do with that information. And I think that's where accountability comes in for not only the individual who's not experiencing and living with, you know, whether it's mental illness or physical ailment, but also the individual that's experiencing these different changes and these sudden changes in their life mm. is to say that I'm going to communicate this is where I'm at and this is what I can do. And if that is not within your capacity to deal with, I understand and I'm going to allow you to decide. Because again, it's not fair to yourself to not allow yourself to decide and kind of communicate to self, well, this is where I'm at. I think the first step really is not only communicating that, but also saying, also accepting that this is where you're at. And that can be really difficult, is accepting that your life has changed and it's going to look different. And because it's going to look different, I need to accept that there are going to be changes that I need to make for myself and for the people in my life. And I need to allow them the choice. Mm. Do they want to continue in my life or do they not want to? If they choose not to, remembering, I think the biggest thing I would say is also adding is remembering it is not a reflection of self. And that's a really significant thing is realizing that because someone chooses to no longer be involved with you. It's not a reflection of who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. You may be engaging in behavior that is not serving them in the way in which they want to engage with others, but it doesn't mean that it's a reflection of who you are as a person or that you can't make these changes. Because we, we are ever growing as humans and in being that we can make changes within ourselves and we also have to accept that people are going to make changes within their relationships. You can find the links to contact Emily Carter Hale at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. And that's where you can also go to hear Julia Joubert's extended interview with her and find some of the resources that she mentioned on boundary setting, as well as links to apps for therapy and mental wellness. It's all at peacetalksradio.com. Coming up, a first-hand story from a person living with invisible illnesses and chronic pain and how she's trying to come to peace with how her life and relationships have changed. All after this short break. Stay tuned.
You are listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. And I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with help from correspondent Julia Joubert. And today, she's exploring the complexities that sudden illness can bring to a relationship. We've met and learned from a couple who are committed navigating that challenge day to day together through such a situation. And we heard from Emily Carter-Hale about how crucial communicating and being accountable to the self is. Now we meet Danny Funsale, a 31-year-old South African nanny diagnosed with what she describes as a revolving door of new illnesses. Danny begins by sharing how having posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, P-O-T-S, among other chronic illnesses, has affected her life and relationships over time. Okay, so with POTS, your blood flow isn't normal throughout your body. And because it's an orthostatic situation, that means it's a positional thing. So when your body is like prostrate, if you're lying down or sitting, you are doing all right in terms of your heart rate. But the minute you get up, all the blood flows to your legs and you're not getting enough oxygen or blood through to your brain. So your heart's working over time. So your heart rate would be unusually high. And that can cause from dizziness to nausea to me, which would be passing out and or seizures. So it, it varies from person to person. When we spoke before, there was mention of this virus when you were a child. Throughout your high school career, you were absent a lot of the time because of what you were struggling with physically. What you're describing now as well with POTS is literally not being able to stand up for fear of passing out or having a seizure. How has that affected your life? How has that affected your relationships over time? That was what was very difficult for me because as a child, despite being quiet and just very reserved, I was very competitive and very hardworking and I wanted to succeed. And I was constantly sort of fighting to be this person while my body itself was dragging me backwards. Mm. I was quite young then, so that I was about 14. It was, it wasn't as hard as it was now mm-hmm. when it comes to my personal relationships. Maintaining friends was easy then because you're still at school and mm-hmm. you're there most days and you see each other most days. It's the familial relationships that really changed then because I was no longer the star pupil, the star child. I couldn't keep up and... I could really see the changes of expectations, not just from my side, but from my family standpoint. Mm. And even my teachers, I could see the disappointment. It was quite visible. Mm. How did you process that? I think it took me a very long time. I still have some anger towards that, which has very much dulled in the how many years it's been because I now can look back and say okay they understood even less Mm. what I was going through 
yes, now I can see. But then it was my whole world. It was, I am just a, a disappointment. I have failed everybody. It was devastation. And then the longer that went on, the more and more my mental health declined. Yeah. You mentioned that it was easier at school because you were kind of forced into a situation or people were forced into a situation to to interact and, and to be friends. I just wanted to, I wanted to follow up on what you've been saying there in terms of comparing then to now and saying that now mm. it is more of a struggle and I completely recognize making friends or maintaining friendships in your 30s is hard enough as it is but maybe sticking to the role that your your diagnoses have played in that would you be able to tell us a bit about how they've affected your ability to make and maintain relationships yes so my chronic illnesses have played a massive part in all of my relationships and um, I'd say the last maybe 10 years is where I've seen the biggest of struggles when it comes to maintaining friends because you really want you want to be able to be there you want to be able to give back you want to be able to give as much energy as you get from the other person mm. you want to be able to go okay I'll come see you or I'll meet you there or anything like that and when you're sometimes unable to get out of bed or if they they live a little bit or quite a bit further from you even though those like small little things eventually add up to be the clinching moment where the friendship sort of melts away because nobody's ever explained to me when it's sort of seemingly come to an end. I've never had an explanation. Mm. So it's always a, an assumption on my part that it's my fault. Are you saying that people ghost you? 100%. And there is no explanation of, hey, I, you know, I feel like I keep making the effort. I feel like I'm always putting in more. Can we figure it out? That hasn't that communication hasn't really happened for you. No. And it was always ghosting. So that it's a lot harder when that is how it ends. But because I was very aware of this, of what my body was doing and what my body could and could not do, I was constantly trying to communicate, I'm really sorry, you know, I can't I'm trying. Mm. And I remember as a kid, I would try to give back in gift form it was like a gift to you know please stay my friend that's heartbreaking <laughs> yeah and I just kept giving and giving in that form and not truly being able to give in the form I wanted to give have you come to peace with that at all I have been able to look back on it and see I wouldn't say you know, a them problem because it, you know, it always takes two to tango. But what unfortunately happened is I got too good at letting people go and moving on. And so there, therein comes sort of a, the lack of processing and the sort of indifference, which I think indifference is a terrible thing. Yeah. And so people coming in and out of my life sort of became the norm and I didn't realize that that was not normal but I did realize 
how much it hurt every time. And so I stopped letting people into my life. Or in other words, I just isolated myself more. Can I ask you what is potentially a difficult question? Mm -hmm. In almost asking you to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's ghosted you. But what you're saying is, is that communication is key. Honesty is key. Would you rather have somebody say, hey, this relationship is just not meeting my expectations? And therefore, I am calling it quits because that's a hard conversation to have. I honestly, I myself, I think I would, I'd be stressing over it for months if this was my truth and I needed to communicate this to somebody who was clearly struggling. That's a really difficult thing to do. I would, yeah, I would 100% take that. And by that little communication, there's also a chance to learn exactly what that person was feeling and how I could try and adapt if I was able to. And with that last ghosting relationship, I said that in the last text message. I said, if you're feeling like this because of me being unable to. So I was sort of, sort of like having a conversation for two people mm. through text message, trying to f figure out their feelings and reasonings, just to, I think give myself some sort of closure whereas sometimes you know closure just doesn't matter yeah ending things relationships whatever it's it's never going to be easy but i think it's how you move on from that that matters the most i want to come to communication in that from the sounds of things you are pretty good at communicating your needs and and your desires and where you are at in a day would you mind sharing how you go about that? I know that seems like such an obvious answer, but communication can be really difficult for a lot of people. How do you communicate these needs once check-ins with friends and family? My whole life's like motto, I guess, would be, you know, that cliche that honesty is the best option. I can't remember what it is now. Policy, is it? Honesty is the best policy. Policy, yes. <laughs> honesty is the best policy. Yeah. So... My communication skills from my end, I would always say are pretty good because I just came to a point where I thought, why lie? Why pretend? Because there was a very long time where I was pretending that I could do everything, that I could manage everything, that everything was fine, I was fine. And when I realized I wasn't fine, I realized, okay, I'm going to have to change how I communicate and so my honesty is the best policy really amped up <laughs> I've seen how communication and lack thereof affects so many people's lives and I think people are scared to communicate their true feelings or what they're going through because they don't want to look like failures in their partner's eyes and their family's eyes because when you are trying to communicate what you're dealing with when you talk about it you can't help hiding your emotions it's been really interesting talking to you and hearing how you navigate your relationships in that and correct me if I'm wrong you are carrying almost the quote-unquote sufferer role as well as the role of the caregiver in that you are 
aware of your own pain, what you're struggling with, but then you are empathizing exceptionally with other people as well. So I guess I'd just like to hear from you. Do you have a perceived role or do you feel like you have a perceived role in these relationships? You you hit the nail on the head there with caregiver. That That is my role, not just from my point of view, but in terms of family and friends. That is the role that I've played and often to my own detriment, yes. How do you feel about that? Is there a part of you that wants to be taken care of more? Yes. A billion percent, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I, have, I think I've been alone so long that I miss those little bits of humanity that just don't exist in my periphery anymore. Do you think that comes with the, the self-isolation as well? of not wanting to be yes. a burden then means that people don't see that there is something to be looking after. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and I don't want this to turn into like a therapy session, <laughs> but I am in, you know, quite a few support groups and that on Facebook. And that does seem to be a common theme mm. that, yes, it's from self-isolation, but you can also see how you are isolated in others' eyes you know, mm-hmm. in, through their actions as well. How important have these groups been for you? And are you a part of any other communities? I'm on mostly Facebook groups. And there are some helpful TikTok. There's one for pots or whatever. But these groups are helpful. Even if, even if you don't interact, sometimes it's just nice to... You see something pop up and you go, oh, I've experienced exactly that. I'm not totally alone in that. I think these groups can be really, really helpful, not just in providing support, but also providing information if you need it. For anybody who might be in a similar position to you, do you have any any advice on where to go if they needed help, what steps you've taken in support, for example, you mentioned these like Facebook groups where you can kind of communicate with people. Is there anything else that somebody could could look for in this situation? I, I see a therapist once a week, every week, as well as seeing my psychiatrist once a month, every month. But I do understand that that's an expense that is not available to everybody. But I have found, yes, with the help of just talking to somebody and medication helps as well. And I think it's just learning, not learning who you are, but learning maybe where you are. Because in by doing that, you can figure out what you want. We all, I think, know what we don't want. Hmm. But for people who are in situations like mine, it's difficult to know what you do want because you don't know if you can have it. So it it's really the communication on the outside is just as important as the communication on the inside. I wanted to close with a question on the relationships that you have in your life that have been maintained, that are working, where communication is flowing. What do you value most in those relationships? I feel like this is the most difficult question that you've asked. Yeah. Because I struggle to pinpoint which relationships are flowing 
really. Mm. Because, as I said earlier, my family are really the only people I have. But I think the best relationships that I have are with my niece and nephew. And that might sound strange, but they're nine and seven. And for me, I've wanted to give them a perspective of life that I never had. So even though I'm not their parent, I just do my own little bit and I'll take them for dinner and it will be a feelings dinner. So we'll, how are you feeling today? How have you been feeling? Mm. And what, why do you feel this way? You know, it's okay to feel this way. It's just trying to create a world for these kids where there's no feeling of invalidity, where they feel, you know, accepted for what they're feeling, for who they are, their explanations for most things, some things not. But it's just, yes, those relationships for me are, I think, the most important because it it's nurturing from both sides. I was going to ask, do you feel like it, in a way, by imparting that, it's emboldening you in those feelings as well? It does, it does. And I've never seen kinder children and that is something that just makes my heart happy well that was danny fonsale her full interview as well as the rest of julia's complete interviews with her guests today can all be heard at peacetalksradio.com that's peacetalksradio.com look for the episode that originally aired in july of 2023 peacetalksradio.com is where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002 You can see photos of our guests, you can read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, and importantly, make a donation to keep this program going into the future. It's all at peacetalksradio.com. Support does come from listeners like you, very much so, but also the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director, and Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Julia Joubert and all of us at Peace Talks Radio, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting our work here at peacetalksradio.com. Peace Talks Radio.